Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 17th of October 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson and uh, also by Mark Anderson, who is in the USA. Okay, let's get straight on then. And uh, well, we reported on Friday the wonderful news that our new Prime Minister is uh, Jeremy Hunt. Here he is on screen. Uh, he's been appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer, of course, but he's reversed everything to such a degree that Liz Truss really is not in the role anymore, is she? It doesn't appear so. No. no. Somebody, um, some outlets are talking about a coup, which I'll mention a little bit later. Well, let's just see what he said this morning then. We will reverse almost all the tax measures announced in the growth plan three weeks ago that have not started parliamentary legislation. So the only thing that's left is uh, the stamp duty change, uh, which means that you don't pay tax on buying a house until you're spending more than £250,000. And the national insurance change. Uh, we will continue with the abolition of health and social care levy and the stamp duty change off payroll working reforms, the new VAT shopping scheme for non-UK visitors and the freeze and alcohol duty rates. A Treasury-led review will take place into how people are helped with energy bills from April next year. So this is the really the, the main news out of this because Liz Truss doubled down on this energy bill relief so, so much in everything that she said and suddenly it's reversed. So if we remember what she was doing, because this was the uh, forecast for what energy prices were going to do next year. And uh, well, she decided that she was going to put a limit of, of for the average bill of two and a half thousand pounds on it, represented by that light blue line on there. But in April 2023, now he's saying that will end. Uh, and so basically from the third between the 30th of March and the 1st of April, uh, well, there you go. We're going to have to find that amount of extra money to pay. Uh, well you know, theoretically. Yeah, my, my comment, Mike, is wh where is the debate about this? How, how does the population, adult population of UK see what is discussed? Who said what? Where are the minutes of, of this action? Um, well, good question. But uh, let's have a look at this one then, because this is probably even more significant in certain ways. Business support, he said, will go to those most affected and will incentivize energy sufficiency. This is for energy support for businesses. Think about that term. Think about what he's saying there. Uh, it, it will go to those uh, most affected and will incentivize energy efficiency. Just compare that to what uh, uh, Mark Carney said in October 2019. Companies that don't adapt to the net zero policy, including companies in the financial system, will go bankrupt without question. So the government is now saying, they're basically echoing what Mark Carney said, they're only going to provide support uh, where it's being used for energy efficiencies, for net zero policies and so on. Uh, and otherwise, well, you're not going to get the support and the likelihood is you're going to go out of business. Yeah. Um, let's uh, move on with this then, because uh, the energy bailout is only one of half of the energy bailout that actually, that's actually taking place. This one really didn't get much coverage. Uh, so this is the Bank of England's press release from the 8th of September. HM Treasury and Bank of England launch the Energy Markets Financing Scheme. Uh, and, uh, well, let's see what he had to say about that. He said, a resilient energy market is vital as we all grapple with the consequences of Putin's horrifying invasion of Ukraine and his decision to weaponize Russia's energy reserves. Uh, today, we are continuing to act to ensure the market itself is secure, significantly reduce reducing the risk of any market failure. So this is basically a secondary bailout of the energy markets where the government will guarantee loans to energy market participants. Um, we're talking about the actual energy, retail energy companies themselves. 
Um, and uh, uh, so it is effectively a bailout. In the meantime, of course, uh, if we think back to uh, a year ago, uh, we had this kind of rhetoric from the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank, inflation, don't worry. Uh, we had the same kind of rhetoric from Andrew Bailey from the Bank of England, the governor of the Bank of England, as required by the remit of the government, uh, sorry, the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. When inflation moves away from the 2% target, I have to write to the chancellor, uh, but he, his message at that time was, don't worry, be happy. Today, the message, or yesterday rather, the message wasn't quite the same. We will not hesitate to raise interest meets to, uh, rates to meet the inflation target. Uh, and as things stand today, my best guess is that inflationary pressures will require a stronger response than we perhaps thought in August. I mean, this guy is at least as incompetent as, as uh, Liz Truss. And I saw uh, a, an interesting article, which I largely agreed with on on uh, uh, Zero Hedge saying, you know, what's going on in the markets is not Liz Truss's fault. It wasn't the, 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 the sort of growth uh, budget wasn't what caused it. It, it. There's actually fundamental changes right across the world within the markets. And of course, that's very true. Uh, but it is Liz Truss's fault at the same time, uh, in the sense that she certainly didn't have the political uh, clout to push through her, uh, her policy. Uh, Alex, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, she she was she's such a lightweight politically that she couldn't push uh, the the uh, re reforms that she wanted to push through, uh, and uh, so we're now back in this uh, well, effectively austerity of a kind. I think there's a lot to be said for that, actually, Mike. And uh, just as at the beginning of your segment, I was thinking of Mark and other American viewers and how they would understand such British euphemisms for tax as duty and insurance, stamp duty being house tax and national insurance being health tax. So as you progressed, I was thinking, how are the European continental viewers going to understand this? Because they are used to an administrative role of a prime minister. We have some quite deep constitutional work to do, uh, which is being done in the background to understand the role of prime minister. It began as a term of abuse in the 18th century. It was a finger-wagging way of saying, you, uh, you, a particular crown minister, think you're more important than the others. That shows just how collegiate and how uh, primus inter pares the role used to be. Uh, you used to have to carry the whole of the cabinet with you. You still do in other English-speaking democracies, notably the United States. A president can't function without his cabinet. Uh, this is to some extent, not true in Europe. And they might be thinking uh, in more technocratic terms, you know, come on, just, just appoint a, a, a good administrator as finance minister, chancellor of the exchequer, as we call them in Britain, and get on with it. But you can't. You need the heft in the British parliamentary system in order to get things done. There are wings in the Conservative Party, as there are in any governing party, even if it's not in coalition. And if you just get the uh, reputation of being a wet paper bag, as Truss has within her first few weeks, then, yes, you are going to be thrown like um, prey to the sharks. They are always circling in a model like Westminster model, particularly, I would say, in the Tory party. Uh, and the confidence of backbenchers does seem to have been lost at this point. What we're seeing behind the scenes, of course, is that rather eternal struggle going on bet between the two wings of the British deep state in their latest incarnations, their figure headed by Sedwill and Dearlove, the two old spooks uh, who have respectively pro-EU and pro-transatlantic inclinations. And uh, Truss is really, I think, all at sea at this point because she can't command either of those wings. Uh, indeed. Well, look, uh, let's get back to energy then, Alex. This is from the Bank of Finland, Suomen Panki, and it's reported by MTV News, MTV Utiset, 
and uh, we'll do a translation of what's on screen at the moment. It's not directly from the bank, but it's reporting on what a very senior person at the bank said. So the person being quoted is Päivi Hekkinen, who's head of the Bank of Finland's Payment Systems Department, so not a lightweight. And MTV Utiset reports that he's encouraging Finns to build up a home reserve for payments. Uh, the newspaper then editorializes fewer and fewer Finns are using cash. Only 7% in a recent survey said that they made a habitual use of cash. But Mr. Hekkinen says, don't give up cash. Quote, having more payment methods brings, here's the word of the decade, resilience. If a single payment method, think bank cards, sometimes won't work, think crash, we have other payment methods at our disposal. Cash still plays a crucial role here, he says. Uh, just a comment by me in the middle of that, a very different attitude from their next door neighbours, the Swedes, who are the closest to abolishing cash, if I think any jurisdiction in the world. The second quotation slide from Hitkinen is that we now have to be prepared for the possibility that someone, uh, perhaps peering over the eastern border, at least in accusational terms, might deliberately want to disrupt Finnish society and its critical infrastructure, such as payment systems. And Hitkinen says, this is another reason why having a modest home reserve to make payments would be a good thing. He ends up with another quote with a colourful Finnish idiom in it. I don't want to paint devils on the wall, but we are now talking about more serious disruptions than have been raised heretofore with regard to payments. I think people can work out what the mood music is there. The Finns do have a habit, uh, being latecomers to the EU and NATO, uh, of uh, telling the truth and getting civil contingencies lined up better than countries further west and south in Europe, which, dare I say, have gone a bit softer in their population and a bit more trusting of government, uh, a bit less self-reliant. The Finnish uh, key characteristic is uh, sisu, or toughness, and uh, I think with that in mind, the Finns are taking a cold, hard look at what's likely to happen, whether or not the Russians are, in fact, to blame in the end. But look no further than London or the abolition of cash. Jonathan Rousen has tweeted a thread which has become quite well shared over the last few days, <clears throat> I have no means of verifying it, of course. I'm reporting it as is. Uh, and this is for our overseas viewers. I think they'll maybe know this. Tesco is, is our major supermarket. And in uh, urban areas, certainly uh, in the London Chancery Lane where this took place, it's uh, one of pretty much the only uh, option for popping in at certain times of day and getting food. Now, Rousen says he had a distressing experience at Tesco at 10 to 11 at night near Chancery Lane Underground Station after a work event. He says, I see a store. I think I'm in luck because he needs to get a sandwich, but I can only enter the store if I download the supermarket's app and sign up to their loyalty scheme, the Tesco Club Card. He goes on. Pragmatism had me download the app, but I said no to the Club Card. I couldn't proceed to buy the sandwich and get home. There was a barrier. I asked for help. The staff member took my phone and changed my option on the phone screen to accept Club Card. I said, no, thanks. He said, well, then you can't get in. But it goes on. I said, I just want to buy a sandwich and there was nowhere else open. He said, and I have to say, uh, commenting as Alex here, I'm hearing this kind of thing more and more often from Dutch store staff. When we ask them about abolition of cash registers and uh, sacking of staff, they say, oh, we're, we have nothing to worry about. We feel quite happy with this. So this man uh, working for Tesco in London said, sorry, Mr. Rousen, but this is Tesco store policy now and it's what customers want. Soon, he said, all stores will be like this. People protest, sir, but then they come back a few days later, he said. And skipping a few things in the thread, uh, Jonathan Rousen ends with this. Gosh, and now I see an email with my Tesco club card number has come through. 
When the store assistant changed my decision not to accept a club card on my phone, I didn't manage to stop him in time. Tesco, can you please cancel this card and let me know it's been cancelled? Thank you. I repeat, I haven't been able to verify any of this, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's at least 90% truth in it. Yeah, so uh, uh, we'd be very interested in hearing from anybody else that's had a similar experience. Uh, let's uh, move over to um, Switzerland now and uh, this website inside uh, Parade Platz. Uh, and let's do a quick translation of what this says. Uh, SMB stress shoots up now $6 billion from the Fed, doubling of the F US Federal Reserve swap facility for Swiss colleagues within a week. 15 Swiss banks need extra credit. So they're saying that the stress in the money market has gone through the roof. The SMB more than doubled the, its dollar swaps with the US Federal Reserve. As of the 5th of October, uh, it was only $3.1 billion and only as in inverted commas. Uh, now at 6.27 billion, they provide a graph to show uh, when these swaps transactions have taken place over the last couple of years. And you can see uh, the degree to which it has grown. Um, so quite a number of Swiss banks apparently uh, in under stress and needing uh, some help. So, and then just for, sorry, just to end this segment off, I'll just mention the, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party convention that's been taking place uh, and uh, well, the media reporting that uh, she has uh, decided to double down on the uh, uh, zero COVID policy. And of course, a lot of the supply chain and availability issues uh, that we've been experiencing in the West have been as a result of that. Um, so no relief for us there. Incredible situation. My, my uh, brain at the moment is sticking on the fact that we, we have no idea really who's making the decisions anywhere, Mike. So we've got Andrew Bailey from the Bank of England. When he's talking, is he talking Bank of England? Is he talking Treasury? Is he talking the Bank of International Settlements? So all these decisions have been made, but who's actually made them? Where were the minutes of the meeting? The public in UK completely unaware. And we're also unaware of what, what's going on with other individuals. But um, let's bring in Sir Jeremy here, head of um, GCHQ, BBC reporting a few days ago that he, um, in a talk, he was stating that Chinese technology poses a major risk. So we've just taken some of his comments here. China's leadership was using technology to secure control at home and abroad. And uh, for whatever this man sees, he seems concerns about, uh, concerned about things. Uh, I am calling for a grown-up conversation about collaboration with China at UK universities. And I think this is a very interesting comment because we've seen this uh, liaison grow and grow over the years. And you say, well, it's almost as though the Chinese can walk overseas at the moment and organize um, collaboration with China and other countries without any recourse to possible security implications. So perhaps um, Jeremy Fleming is uh, getting involved in, or in pointing that out. Um, he said there's been some controversy over some educational institutions carrying out joint projects with Chinese counterparts with defence or surveillance ties. The UK should continue to welcome students from China, uh, but be really clear on the areas of technology where we will require additional safeguards. Areas like artificial intelligence, quantum computing were particularly important. So just before I move on um, from that, uh, Alex, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Mr. Fleming, Sir Jeremy Fleming seems to be 
uh, very nervous about what's happening in relations with China at the moment. What do you make of it? The main thing I make of it is that this is two levels above his decision grade. No disrespect to the man, uh, but even at the time I left GCHQ in 2009, there was a level above him, the Joint Intelligence Committee at the Cabinet Office, to make these all-source assessments, and it's very much within their ballpark to say things like China's leadership is doing X and Y. And since that time, there's also been a US-style National Security Council brought in into the British intelligence infrastructure. That too should be having a central view of what's going on, not a single source view from signals intelligence and communication security. Uh, so that is a bit odd. The other thing that jars is that Mr. Fleming, actually Sir Jeremy, isn't it, um, spent most of that speech to the Royal United Services Institute last week, uh, crowing that uh, Britain was an open society for which he was jolly glad to have been brought up in. And uh, not, not at all like China's closed and suspicious uh, way of, uh, of running itself and leveraging its neighbors. But now he's saying, uh, we need to be a bit more closed with regard to our main asset, our universities. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff because we can't give an answer to our audience, but we can say things just don't seem right. So let's pop Jeremy Hunt back on screen. So here's the BBC headline from a couple of days ago. Who is Jeremy Hunt, new UK Chancellor who backs Sunak in leadership race? Well, my mind goes to really who Mrs Hunt is because we're in a fascinating situation where there's quite a bit of media coverage of Mrs. Jeremy Hunt or Lady Jeremy Hunt, but of course, um, nothing much is said. So these are just some of the headlines you can see. This is the Express, Jeremy Hunt wife. Will Lucia Guo uh, join Hunt at number 10? Who is Jeremy Hunt's wife? Jeremy Hunt's wife, who is she? Uh, uh, reference to a Japanese-Chinese meeting. Uh, how many children? So most of the uh, coverage is, is very uh, bland with not a lot of information at all. And uh, I just got fascinated that if we dig deeper and see who is saying what, we come in from a different angle. We suddenly discover if this is correct, that this lady's worth a million dollars. Um, who is she? Well, we've now got something else appeared. She's a journalist, a politician, as well as being a businesswoman alongside her husband. But we've got no date details of those links. Um, parents, mother, not known, father, not known. And this is correct, because when you look at the articles in the wider mainstream media, they just refer to her parents in China with no details. This one I found particularly fascinating because, of course, all of the media states very clearly she's Chinese. But for some reason in this particular article, it's, it's asking what her ethnicity is. Well, there are lots of ethnicities in China. So the question is which one? And that would give us a clue as to what perhaps or what kind of ideology she might be interested in. Well, or are there other national connections, Mike? We don't know because there's no information actually being given. And then we start to get interesting reports. So this is the week. Why is Jeremy Hunt's wife being dubbed as a political weapon? Now, this was from some time ago, admittedly, but apparently uh, Hunt suddenly got very worried that his children might face discrimination if immigration is not controlled. So that gives us an interesting little uh, look into what might be uh, discussed within the family. Here was the mail. Jeremy Hunt's wife presents show on China's state-run TV that whitewashes Communist Party's human rights abuse. Now, we could say that this is a pretty... Um, what's the word? 
inflammatory in some ways article, but it's quite interesting because it's talking about her relationship uh, with Chinese state-run media. And it's talking in particular about her appearances on China Hour, a senior a series broadcast on Sky TV that showcases Chinese culture to a UK audience. And it says here in the next uh, sentence, it's made for the state-owned Chinese China International TV Corporation and British-based Dove Media in partnership with the communist regime's tourist office in London. So that's all pretty cosy. I couldn't find any details about Dove Media, but uh, maybe that'll come through. But later on in the article, it tells you this. Five years ago, when Health Secretary Mr Hunt led a delegation to China, the visit resulted in a deal that included a UK-China media production treaty and the launch of China Hour on Sky Channel 191. So this is just fascinating. So did he go over there as health secretary and effectively get his wife a job? Is that what's happened? Well, we don't know, Mike, because there's no detail about this. And this is the whole point I'm making for, for our uh, audience. So here it uh, goes on to say that Dove Media Group is part of the Chinese, a global Chinese media cooperation forum. And it also says that Mr. Hunt and uh, Ms. Gio de declined to comment. Well, I did a little bit more uh, digging and this led me to History Heist. Now, I have no idea of the status of this channel. I've taken it on face value. And uh, what I was interested to see is they had a report about Mrs. Hunt. And this is the report. It says the CCP connected wife of Jeremy Hunt, a former British Foreign Health Secretary and candidate for the leadership of the Conservative Party, and potential future prime minister. We're getting very close to that. Uh, she was born in Xi'an, China. Her parents reportedly operate a military uniform factory for the People's Liberation Army, according to sources inside China. She was trained at the People's Liberation Army's Foreign Language Institute, which is subordinate to the Intelligent Bureau of the Joint Staff uh, Department of the Central Military Commission. Now, I'm going to put up here straight away. I have no idea whether what this article is, is, is claiming is true or not. Uh, but I find it fascinating that the media across the board in UK simply does not give us any detail about the background of this woman uh, who is now, um, how do we do this, in very close proximity to the Chancellor. Um, I think the public's got a right to know. Um, Alex. Has any vetting gone on in relation, security vetting gone on in relation to Mrs. Hunt, I wonder? And why is it that the UK public doesn't seem to be able to know any real details about her in her background? Vetting will not have gone on, to my knowledge, because there are a couple of categories of people in the British establishment who are exempt ex officio by, by dint of the job they hold from being security vetted for top secret. And one of these is cabinet ministers and, in, in fact, front benchers in the opposition parties uh, because they are made privy councillors with very few exceptions. They take the oath to the crown, superseding the oath to the uh, people or parliament. In, well, not there isn't such a, a separate oath, but loyalties. Um, and they are just told, well, you can re you're regarded as a trusty chap or chapess to receive the material. The other category would be judges who sometimes do play fast and loose with intelligence in court because they just ignore the classifications. So no, uh, he won't have been vetted, Mr. Hunt, um, and much less his wife. Uh, just it, it strikes me that uh, if Mr. Hunt does ever become 
de jure prime minister, I think he de facto is, as we've been discussing already, then he's going to have an uneasy relationship with his subordinate via the the foreign secretary, namely Sir Jeremy Fleming, director GCHQ, because what Fleming was calling for, being uh, suspicious about Chinese students at British universities, uh, is rather contrary to Mrs. Guo or Mrs. Hunt's uh, first job in Britain, which was at Warwick University, one of our esteemed red brick universities, very popular with Chinese students. And as I understand it, her job there was recruiting Chinese, perhaps of the right type, uh, to fill these uh, spots in British universities. So that is not going to make for the easiest of relationships, particularly if, as is common with the communist countries generally, it is true Uh, if it turns out to be true that uh, having studied foreign languages to a high level involves subordination to the intelligence apparatus. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll just throw those questions out to to our audience and see what comes back. But I just wanted to add to it. This is Telegraph article from Tim Stanley. Liz Truss is the victim of a very British coup. Deviate from orthodoxy and you'll be crushed by the Remainer expert-driven establishment. And perhaps you were intimating a little bit about that, Alex, just now. Um, He starts off by saying, I didn't like the mini budget. I reject his policies and philosophies. But even though I'm on the populist wing of conservatism, I resent what's being done to Liz Truss and regret this very British coup. Any Tory who welcomes it is a fool. And I want to say that I'm, I'm also looking at what's happening here, where we seem to be having decisions made at the highest levels of government and around people in government, where we simply do not know who the people are making the decisions and who holds the power. Um, So where we're really coming to is who is controlling Britain at the moment. It's becoming increasingly unclear. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there or you can pick something up at shop.ukcolumn.org, but uh, do please share the material that you find on various platforms. Uh, And Alex, that uh, brings us on to this. Uh, COVID-19, are we going back to mask wearing is the question. Well, it's something that the Irish public broadcaster RTE can't answer, but it's raising the question. Uh, An American-style yellow school bus there, although it seems to have adults in it, is the uh, image for the article with this very striking caption at the bottom. Mask wearing was once mandatory on public transport, as if it was a tale of long ago and of yesteryear. Um, But here we are. This is the main extract of what RT has come out from. And this is actually from another piece linked through from that piece, so not from the one that's headlined at the moment, uh, but more detail, is that uh, the, the Irish government has plans in place for the speedy mass vaccination of the entire eligible population, should this become necessary over the winter. Uh, This is just kept in the drawer, we're told. There are no plans to introduce mandated mask wearing, but if required, the mask mandates in certain settings, for example, transport and healthcare, will involve a point-in-time assessment of indicators and will take, quote, due consideration of the personal, ethical and public health perspectives. So where Ireland goes, many European countries may yet follow. But you don't have to go all the way to... Well, hold on a second, Alex, just before you move on, I wanted to, I wanted to put this to you because uh, uh, Mr. Swan, the uh, Northern Irish Health Secretary, or have, not that they have a government at the moment, but, but anyway, he, he extended the uh, uh, legislation, the emergency powers legislation recently for COVID-19, uh, and it's the only UK country uh, to do that. And I just wonder if that is in order to keep it more aligned with what's going on in the Republic. That is very likely because, as you'll know better than me, um, 
the healthcare sphere, the, the agricultural sphere, anything that involves people or animals going back and forth across the border, there is a de facto all-Ireland policy now coming from both the Dublin and the Belfast governments, or as you've alluded to, it's the Westminster government directly administering Stormont at the moment, and they also come from the European Union. Uh, ultimately, of course, they'll come from the World Health Organization. So there's, there's a lot of momentum involved in that. Uh, but right, in, right there in England as well, you've got similar uh, questions about COVID going on. Uh, this is an interesting Substack blog called Dead Man Talking. The URL is metatron.substack.com. This is authored by Joel Smalley, who lives somewhere uh, due west of London by the look of it, uh, who's found some fraud or bungling going on using his National Health Service digital identity. <clears throat> so the uh, piece is entitled Evidence of Incorrect Vaccination Records. He headlines with the question, can any British, UK, uh, British vaccine efficacy data and analysis be trusted if the vaccinated population number is not correct? That's a pretty basic given, isn't it? Britain, of course, has a much vaunted digital uh, system in that the NHS is very much more the monopoly in Britain than it is in any other country, perhaps with the exception of Canada. So it is a, a globalist's wet dream to, uh, to play with this system. And we're going to see some uh, indications that there's some fraud going on. So we're going to run a half second, half minute um, silent video of Mr. Smalley, and he's blacked out his own details, but he's entering his National Health Service uh, data. Many people in Britain have this now in app format and comparable in other Western countries. He's a confirmed uh, jab refuser. That's the main thing. He calls himself tongue-in-cheek an anti-vaxxer in his blog. Um, so he's not taken any jabs, but look, when he goes to his results, he finds that he went first to Fairfield Centre, which is in Leatherhead, an hour and a half southeast of him. And then several weeks later, he took another manufacturer's jab up in Stoke-on-Trent, three hours to the northwest at Norfolk Street Pharmacy. Well, obviously he didn't, if we take his word for it. He's in a WhatsApp group of six, uh, what he again calls tongue-in-cheek anti-vaxxers, and two out of six, so a third of the people involved uh, in this tiny sample, but in telling sample, uh, found that this had gone on with them. So there on screen right now is his write-up of what's gone on. Uh, below this, if people go to the blog, he uh, raises, without uh, insisting on any of the options, raises some of the reasons this might be going on. Uh, but just there in text is his uh, spelling out how ridiculous this is. First jab uh, with manufacturer A, uh, from memory it was Pfizer, 10th of December, an hour and a half southeast of him. Second jab, 10 months later, three hours northwest of him. And that was uh, Moderna, if I remember correctly, at least that was the record. But of course, he didn't have either of those. He goes, goes on to raise several possibilities. To me, the most interesting is the final one he raises, which is, are clinics embarrassedly getting rid of the evidence of expired or soon to expire unwanted stocks of these jabs by uh, thrashing around in the huge pool of uh, NHS numbers, uh, which is more complete in Britain than anywhere else because it's a centralized system and no competitions available. Um, and are they saying, ah, he hasn't taken any jabs, she hasn't taken any jabs, we'll assign them to our soon-to-expire batches so that we don't have such an embarrassment. It's a possibility. So if you would like, without compromising your own privacy, uh, you can try this for yourself. If you know that you haven't taken any of these COVID jabs, you could enter your NHS number and see from the uh, COVID details, which is uh, found from trying to get a COVID travel uh, certification in the NHS app, uh, find whether you have, in fact, been uh, logged as having had jabs in improbable times and places and combinations. Yeah. Okay, Alex, thank you for that. Well, of course, many questions to be asked about the whole vaccine policy and the work of the MHRA, which uh, UK Column is very much going to stay on the case of. But uh, let's bring in Mark, because you've been having a look at uh, what the World Health Organization has been up to 
with its 2022 health summit. Indeed. Um, <clears throat> you might recall I posted an article about the machinations and a pending uh, global health treaty through the WHO that was posted on the UK column website some three plus months ago. And I've been following the thread on this. And sure enough, they had this World Health Summit starting yesterday, the 16th of October on a Sunday. It's continuing as we speak today through tomorrow, <clears throat> excuse me, in Berlin, Germany. And the slide you're showing on the screen, uh, I covered this yesterday, uh, watching it through Zoom. I didn't need press accreditation, nor was there any cost. So, so it, I was free to cover it and listen in. Um, although they wouldn't answer any texted questions I sent in. I, maybe they had too many to answer. Maybe they didn't want to answer, I don't know. But the one you're showing, outsmarting pandemics, collaborative surveillance on the role of public health institutes, they're just kind of nibbling around the edges. I've got something about their um, meeting today that I'll, I'll announce in a couple minutes. <clears throat> Here it says, the COVID-19 pandemic has shown how rapidly and to what dangerous extent diseases can spread today. The risk of an increasing incidence and scale of disease outbreaks with epidemic potential is growing, largely due to ongoing globalization, urbanization, deforestation, and the intensifying interaction between humans and animals. I'm not sure how they measure the intensifying interaction between humans and animals, how they quantify that, they don't explain. And it's interesting that the globalization that they blame for spreading disease is the globalization that they push on the, on the rest of us 24-7, 365. The globalists are complaining about globalization, in other words. That irony aside, it, it adds the COVID-19 pandemic exposed weaknesses in disease surveillance in nearly all countries. What it actually exposed is latent tyranny in reality, but reading on, Traditional surveillance approaches, such as monitoring the number of cases and deaths, even when optimized, are essential but insufficient for the management of complex public health threats. And then it goes on to say the complex challenge to outsmart pandemics, we need to outsmart them now, requires profoundly robust healthcare systems globally as well as a collaborative coordinated preparedness regarding multiple disease areas with pandemic potential, which is why joint forces are urgently needed to respond and prevent a wide range of pandemic threats. And here's the key that leads to further things. A new model is needed for the surveillance for emerging threats, which builds upon traditional surveillance approaches, but also incorporates epidemic intelligence, hmm, genomic surveillance, behavioral and social insights, that's a loaded statement, surveillance at the animal-human interface, et cetera. This is what we mean by collaborative surveillance. And uh, I think you have other slides to show. You can proceed with that. Yeah, this is one voice for a European global health and one health strategy. Now, the language is particularly important here. This also took place yesterday. I've got one again that's very important that's happening now as we speak and in a minute. But this one, the objective of this workshop was to adapt and strengthen the European Global Health Policy Strategy to better align with One Health, capital letters, priorities, and the Sustainable Development Goals, which is Agenda 2030, 
through the UN while also rethinking international cooperation. The updated strategy should enable an integrated and complementary decision process by member states and multilateral organizations like the WHO. Here it adds, a post-COVID-19 Europe must be focused on one health for all and must speak with one voice on global governance for health. Now that language is uh, indicative of what I heard yesterday. I, I zoomed in for about four, four and a half hours of the deliberations yesterday. And one of the overriding things about it was the fixation on there, that there can only be one health modality, the allopathic modality, surgery, drugs, vaccines. Uh, this is what's particularly unsettling about it. Um, I sent in a couple questions about naturopathy, homeopathy, you know, will different modalities be used? Now, for whatever reason, my questions were ignored, and I'm sure it maybe wasn't personal or anything like that. But it, it's a straitjacket in terms of the health modalities. It's one size fits all, one health for all. And that's the underlying thing, even without talking about a pandemic treaty, which would only intensify what I'm saying and make it worse. But that's the one thing that's most unsettling about it is how narrowly gauged it is in terms of what they think healthcare consists of. They're absolutely terrified of uh, pathogens. They say nothing about, for example, um, uh, Monsanto and its uh, Roundup products, which are very widely used, uh, especially in the US, but elsewhere to a point, and the harmful glyphosate that's part of Roundup that gets into um, oats and wheat and uh, many of the grains that we eat and many of the processed foods that we eat and has very deleterious health effects. So um, toxicity and contamination of food and things like that is not brought up. A genetically modified food and the harms that can cause, none of that is discussed. It's germs, 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 pathogens, 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 one health, one health, one health. And so that um, that's an underlying theme that is pretty disturbing. Now, to be fair, they, they talked about certain things like uh, if, we, if we degrade the environment through too much through deforestation, let's say in the Amazon or somewhere else, that that can lead to some problems um, that might indirectly affect people's health. And without going into detail, there's some points there that are worth pondering. Um, but all in all, a lot of that seemed to, um, just be icing on the cake or, or sort of miscellaneous stuff. Um, and the, the main stuff is what I'm discussing now. Now there's another, there's probably another one that you wanna show ports to arms, approach to access. Yeah, we can just mention this one briefly and then I'll get on to the, the main course you might say. But uh, this one involved Tedros himself, the um, secretary general of the World Health Organization. And, uh, Basically, uh, it says here, it's been almost two years since the Fran French President Macron proposed the Charter for Equitable Access to COVID-19 Tools during the Paris Peace, Forum, Paris Peace Forum, excuse me, which subsequently led to the establishment of the ACT Accelerator supported by the WHO. And that's a couple other documents that um, I sent in. You might wanna uh, go on to those. Uh, the ACT Accelerator document, and then, then there's that one, yes. Um, now this is what this ports to arms approach 
uh, access supercharging the ACT for future pandemics, uh, which we just showed. This is what it largely referred to, uh, what you're showing there and the other item. Uh, the, the access to COVID-19 tools or ACT accelerator, it says here, is a groundbreaking global collaboration to accelerate development, production, and equitable access to COVID-19 tests, treatments, and of course, vaccines. I don't know if you guys want to make any um, uh, comments briefly while I move on. Uh, not at the moment, except to say I'm fascinated by the mention of sustainable development coming into this um, because uh, this is the key document where everything in the world is going to be controlled. But I'll say some more about that at the end of the news. Yeah, there, needless to say, covering an event like this, there's a lot to unpack. I printed out a, a great deal of documentation that I've been reading. It's a bit of a cure for insomnia, but <laughs> you have to get through it. It says here, launched at the end of April 2020, moving on with the ACT Accelerator, um, at an event co-hosted by the Director General of WHO, the President of France, the President of the European Commission, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the access to COVID-19 tools accelerator brings together governments, scientists, businesses, civil society, and philanthropists and global health organizations like the Gates Foundation, CEPI, C-E-P-I, FIND, F-I-N-D, Gavi, the Global Fund, Unitaid, Welcome, some of these I'm not familiar with, the WHO and the World Bank, et cetera, et cetera, following the ACT Accelerator launch, UNICEF and PAHQ became delivery partners for COVAX, the vaccine pillar of this whole structure here. These organizations have joined forces to speed up an end to the pandemic by supporting the development and equitable distribution of tests, treatments, and vaccine the world needs to reduce mortality and severe disease, restoring full society and economic activity globally in the near term, and facilitating high level of control of COVID-19 disease in the medium term, and on and on and on. You think that these guys, you know, had literally found the 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 uh, fountain of youth in their in their studies and in their vaccines. So um, they've got our back, evidently. So they say with their One Health, uh, One World policy. But um, at the end of the day, when I looked at the schedule for today. Um, about halfway down, drum roll please, we finally come to what they're getting at. And this is happening right now. It's probably about halfway through the role of parliamentarians in the development of a global pandemic treaty. See, so they're finally cutting to the chase. UNITE, and this is all capital letters, the word UNITE, and the German Health Alliance are convening a discussion to um, a session, excuse me, to discuss the role of parliamentarians in the development of a pandemic treaty. See, so all these elements I've talked about are all heading to this conclusion. Unite Parliamentarians Network for Global Health and the Parliamentary Network on the World Bank and IMF led in 2021, uh, the creation of an International Forum on Global Health, a working group gathering members from 12 different international parliamentary assemblies and networks worldwide under a common global health and economic agenda. In 2022, the working group will, that's of course this year, will focus its work on pandemic preparedness and on delivering a list of recommendations to incorporate in the negotiations 
of the intergovernmental negotiating body, that's the key group, in terms of governance and leadership, legislation, and national regulatory systems, equity, accountability, and oversight, and financing. See, so you see, um, I'll add one part, using the outreach and diversity of the members of the International Forum on Global Health, parliamentarians will try to establish a concrete action plan for parliamentarians to follow around the world in support of the global pandemic treaty. See, so when you look at things like uh, the, uh, uh, where is it at? The, the global health and the parliamentary network on the World Bank and the IMF and the International Forum on Global Health, uh, in, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the parliamentarians, the people that are involved who are from the parliaments are acting in a, sort of a supranational way outside their national norm, uh, their normal national structures to put this together. Yeah. Well, and this... um, one wonders where they even get the authority to do it. But, but this is how, in a very complex fashion, this is how this is panning out. Yeah, Mark, I think it's obvious from what you were saying, this is all about health security. I'll use another trademark term. And it's ultimately about control, super, supranational control. So thank, thank you very much for taking us through that. Okay, Alex, let's move on to Ukraine then. And uh, we uh, had an article on the UK Colm website a week or two ago uh, entitled Leak, German, Government, U German Government's Ukraine War Propaganda Campaign. We have an update on this. We do. We have the confirmation of the authenticity of the document, Mike. Now, this was covered first in nachdenkzeiten.de, a very careful uh, German new media site. And it was, the, I think, the uh, main editor there Florian Varvig, uh, formerly the RT German editor, for which he's hated by many because he still has his Federal Press Club membership. Um, Florian Varvig has now uh, provided me with an update, which is actually public domain. Uh, the uh, Federal Ministry, and you can see the uh, correspondence on screen, the Federal Interior and Homeland Ministry, although Heimat sounds a bit less threatening, but it is the, American, the equivalent of the American Department of Homeland Security nowadays, has replied to an Alternative für Deutschland member of parliament for Berlin, Goetz Fröming, who is of course a doctor, as they all are over there, uh, asking, is this real? And uh, with a link to the Nachdenkzeiten piece, and the, ant uh, the answer from the ministry is that the uh, uh, report in question, which we translated and put on ukcolumn.org about uh, current activities uh, of the authorities uh, in regards to the Russian war against Ukraine, was indeed uh, furnished or, or uh, framed by the federal government. Uh, it is intended to give a general stock take on the information uh, s state of play and the measures being taken. Uh, nothing to see here, basically, but it is genuine. And I see that Mr. Varvig on Twitter, while tweeting out this update, has had quite a few smart Alex from the German-speaking world saying, well, this isn't propaganda. This is just people making sensible arrangements. They're so blind now that this horizontal and vertical mesh of all the ministries and all the states, the lender uh, being involved, six-year-olds, uh, child reporters being involved, nothing to worry about, apparently. And before we move on, I must also emphasize uh, or uh, uh, amplify what Brian said in closing about uh, Mark's segment with global security or health security being the main watchword, because the other thing that's come up over the weekend is the concept of one shot which is uh, the uh, initiative of the Global Health Security Consortium, uh, which you'll find details of on institute.global, which is the homepage of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, because OneShot, 
the Global Health Security Consortium's initiative, is a partnership between the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, the Ellison Institute for Transformative Medicine, and the University of Oxford. And that's all completely separate from the One Health uh, palaver that Mark was taking us through. So quite a lot of oneness going on in the world of global health. Quite a, quite a lot of oneness, um, Alex, and also behavioural change, of course, was mentioned in in Mark's part as well. Propaganda spin, it all goes together. It's an attack on our minds. But Ukraine war has now just got to a really incredible situation. So I took this from the BBC website uh, today, live Russian drone and missile attacks across Ukraine. Nice dark image, which the BBC loves. Uh, but it, very quickly, we get into the reality. Well, Ukraine isn't winning the war, but according to the BBC, they're winning the social media war. And the BBC is very excited because lots of little video clips and memes and images are being sent out from Ukraine, largely begging for weapons. What the BBC doesn't tell its viewers, of course, is that all of this uh, is supported by the BBC and was supported at least by BBC Media Action because they helped set up the modern Ukrainian media system. And um, here's uh, the sort of thing in the article. So this one is obviously being uh, targeted, targeted at Sweden and uh, an anti-tank weapon, the Carl Gustav. And the BBC is very happy that this is being pushed out. So never mind the reality on the battlefield, as long as the uh, uh, as long as Ukraine is winning the propaganda war, uh, the BBC is very happy. And we know that uh, there's trouble on the battlefield because the BBC had to use this image. Uh, it's from the Institute for the Study of War, uh, trying to claim success of the Ukrainians in the south. Uh, southwestern part, the Kyrgyzstan area, but the results of uh, the warfare on the battlefield are disastrous losses for the Ukrainians. And uh, at the moment, that information is simply not allowed to be broadcast on Western media. This is more of the BBC reporting. Uh, the Russians have absolutely stayed on the attack and are advancing in the Bakhmut area which is a key sector on the front because it's still within the built-up area. But the BBC doesn't want to talk about that. Uh, the only summary they're giving is really based on what President Zelensky says. Uh, so I'll leave this uh, for people to freeze and you can read the sheer propaganda coming out of Zelensky himself and his regime. But uh, you get clues for what's happening in Ukraine if you do look at some of social media because... Here is a report that the Ukrainian authorities have banned their media, bloggers and news broadcasters from any mention of the situation in the direction of Kyrgyzstan because the advertised victory has turned into a shameful zrada. Now, I'm not sure what that last word is, but we, we are going to call it a failure. And it's obvious uh, that nobody must talk about the reality of the disastrous losses that the Ukrainians have suffered on the battlefield. So if we just summarise this a little bit to keep it simple, the BBC propaganda at the moment is still that Russia is short of ammunition, bit of a dichotomy because they seem to have unlimited weapons to fire at Ukraine at the moment. Uh, Russia is losing on the battlefield. Russia has suffered huge losses in men. Uh, the Russian long-range strikes are having minimal effect. And not to worry because US supplies of HIMARS rockets, artillery rounds, 
anti-tank weapons and Humvee armored vehicles uh, are going to save Ukraine, which of course they're not. Alex, I don't know whether you've got anything to, to add to that, but it seems to be that the BBC now is so frightened of the situation on the ground, they simply can't report any detailed facts as to what is happening. Yes, zrada is the Ukrainian word for treason. So the Russian side in the media war is claiming not that there's been a simple rout, but that in this area, uh, and in many of the flanks of the south and east of the Ukraine, uh, the pro-Russian and ethnic Russian, or at least Russian-speaking population of mixed ethnicities uh, has decided to throw in its lot, uh, not with its titular citizenship, but with its uh, linguistic and civilizational ally, Russia. So that's uh, possibly a bit telling. If we try to be even-handed about the progress of the war at the moment as best we can, I think it's fair to say that atrocious things have been done, particularly on art artillery bombardments, by both sides during this year. I have no hesitation in saying that from the mass of battlefield accounts that are reaching us. Uh, but the big factor is there are large swathes of the country where the, the Ukrainians cannot go to the wall because uh, there are, okay, deep pockets where they can draw on loyal soldiers and civilians, but there are equally areas where, to the Ukrainians' horror and disbelief and, and amazement, uh, people are saying, you know what, we'd have a better life with the Russians. Uh, so that's why the accusation of treason is coming in. Okay, thank you for that. Well, we just popped this one up as a standalone, really, but the Telegraph reporting a 5.5 billion military disaster around Britain's new Ajax armoured vehicle. It's not a tank, as the Telegraph is calling it, it here. Um, but basically, five and a half billion, Mike, just thrown away. So I don't think there's any chance that uh, Britain's defence industry is going to be doing a lot for Ukraine. We can't even build an armoured vehicle. Uh, it's pretty bad. And uh, if uh, Ukraine is now under control of uh, the US, UK and the EU, um, we've also got um, a situation unfolding in Iran. And um, Mark, just very quickly here, you've also been paying attention to what the White House has been saying about trouble inside Iran at the moment. <clears throat> yes, um, I have here the statement by President Biden on the quote, violent crackdown in Iran, as you're showing there. Of course, the first, first thing to think about is shades of Egypt 2011 and Ukraine, ironically, 2014, where many thought the CIA was involved in uh, massaging, to put it, to put it mildly, the so-called popular grassroots uprisings in those countries. And so we have every reason to believe that the same thing would be true now, that, that the CIA might be fomenting some of this unrest. And uh, I wouldn't say that you know, Iran is Shangri-La, but this is what nationhood looks like. You know, it's not always pretty, but uh, especially by Western standards, but Iran, like it or not, wants to enforce its own laws. And, uh, what is happening here is ironic in, this, in a sense, and, and the, there's a certain hypocrisy involved. There was no such call out about a violent crackdown or at least a uh, tyrannical crackdown when Justin Trudeau cracked down on peaceful protesters during that truck convoy uh, not about a year ago and the occupation of Ottawa versus the COVIDocracy. Uh, Biden was uh, strangely silent when Trudeau carried out that crackdown right on the U.S. border, and we're supposed to have a lot in in you know in common with our our neighbor to the north in terms of 
respects for human rights, the, the, the freedom to protest without interference. And that's exactly what Biden is complaining about with regards to Iran, saying that there are, uh, he's calling for just and universal principles, which underpin the UN Charter and Universal Declaration of Human Rights. For decades, Iran's regime has denied fundamental freedoms to its people and suppressed the aspirations of successive, successive generations through intimidation, coercion, and violence. The U.S. stands behind Iranian women and all the citizens of Iran who are inspiring the world with their bravery. Well, I think that what they're really pushing for is, is a more decadent um, ethos, a, a more globalist uh, ethos for Iran to adopt, which would ultimately probably uh, call on Iranian women to be allowed to have abortions and things like that. I mean, ultimately, that's where the Western model leads. This, this so-called liberation ideology. And I, I do have the statement of, of Iran's uh, leader, Ibrahim uh, Raisi. He's basically calling the U.S. the great devil and saying it has no right to meddle in Iranian internal affairs. So keeping it brief, that's where Iran is on this. And uh, so that's where we're at. But uh, we have every reason to at least suspect that the CIA might be at its tricks again. So we'll keep yeah. an eye on how that's going and report more later on. Okay, thank you for that, Mark. So, Alex, where does that take us um, with uh, NATO and uh, Austria? Well, long-term viewers or people who had a good schooling will know that Switzerland and Austria are both constitutionally neutral and do not take part in alliances, including NATO. In fact, the Swiss only joined the UN uh, this side of the change of the millennium. Austria is therefore a gaping hole in the middle of NATO's uh, uh, colouring on the map. And it is not a frontline state, but it is a very strategic territory for north-south and for east-west transport. And something that NATO would dearly love to have as much as it's now getting its hands on Sweden and Finland in the northeast of the continent towards the Russian border with very significant uh, aerial potential. So Austria is um, something that NATO would like to have. And uh, a brigadier general uh, called Johann Geiswinkler gave uh, a talk in English, an interview, two hours long, which I thoroughly recommend people listen to in full, to a Berlin-based journalist with today's news talk radio. That's tntradio.live. And the host is Dirk Pohlmann. So you'll find, <clears throat> if you go to tntradio.live and then the Dirk Pohlmann show, you'll find this from about a week or so ago. And I think it's exceptionally important what's happened here. Uh, this is Brigadier General, although he's been um, relieved of his command last year, uh, Brigadier General Johann Geiswinkler. He's a specialist in that Austrian uh, speciality, Alpine warfare. Uh, his crime, uh, for which he's been tarnished as far right, uh, is to insist on Austria's Article 1 of the Constitution. That's how central it is in Austria, namely neutrality with regards to foreign blocs. Uh, Geiswinkler gives a number of important points, which I'll summarise just without a slide in as little as a minute, but I think it's very important people listen to it. Uh, he starts in excellent English, saying, I'm sorry that I'm 60 years old and I have very bad English, but the first thing he does is reveal he has very, very excellent English, and he ironically quotes Mark Twain's statement that um, uh, for the function of democ functioning of democracy, you need three things, freedom of conscience, freedom of expression, and the prudence not to practice either of them. Uh, he talks about the social pressure on people who are loyal to the Austrian constitution, uh, which was un 
questioned as recently as 2000, you know, after, a few years after Austria had joined the EU and uh, was beginning to make overtures to NATO in some ways even then. Um, so, for example, if you uh, question uh, the uh, inimicality towards Russia, because Austrians have a very strong memory of being occupied by the Soviets till 1955 in one of their zones, uh, they're supposed to have friendly relations towards Russia uh, as one of the uh, balancing aspects of their diplomacy and that Vienna is host to a lot of these international organizations like the OSCE which talk to the Russians and have the Russians as members but if you insist on that you will find even if you are the relative a wife or, or son of somebody who questions what's going on you will find the banks telling you we're freezing you out because we've had a nasty call from Antifa types and uh, they're threatening or, or journalists who are posing effectively Antifa and they will print a, a piece against us unless we revoke your account. So the constitutional guarantee to a bank account, which is supposed to count for much on the continent, isn't applying. Uh, he's talking about the flagrant violation of Article 1 neutrality of the Austrian constitution. When I was in Austria as an exchange student in 1995, uh, this was plastered all over the walls to the young men who were about to be conscripted. The Federation's promise to you young men is that you will never be deployed abroad. Uh, and this has just gone by the board uh, in a... In a Another example of talking points, propaganda coordination behind the scenes, Guy Swinkler says that what's gone on uh, is that journalists have got these lists, they're circulating of points to attack as far right and suspicious, and one of them is our state neutrality. This is something, even while it's Article 1 of the Constitution and still is in force, it's something to be undermined from the inside. Uh, he gets into the Thucydides uh, drama of uh, or, or dilemma of can a state remain neutral when another state is rising on the horizon, the, uh, the Melos discourse? Listen in full to that because he gives a very learned but accessible uh, explanation of what's going on here and that ultimately the Chinese are going to be laughing uh, and, and they succeed, succeed out of this situation. He emphasizes that over 70% of Austrians are still completely attached to state neutrality. So they have their media and now their military elite and political elite acting against them to the extent that the number two in Austrian federal politics, the uh, deputy chancellor Koller, has said our neutrality is to be to be neutral is to be complicit in mass murder in the beastly Russian war against Ukraine. So he's actually taken sides against Article One of his own constitution. The most ominous thing of all, he says, and it has shades of how the Soviet Union incorporated illegally the three Baltic republics in 1940 to 41, is that he says that he can see NATO saying well, you're a bit of a sore spot, an undefended spot in the middle of our underbelly in Europe. And so if you Austrians can't defend yourselves, not because you have no army, they have a good army, but because you insist on this quaint neutrality, then we may have to take you over and, and, assist, and uh, administer your defence in your own interests. That's exactly how Stalin took over Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. Mm. Yeah, OK, well, we, we shall watch that space. Uh, now, let's yeah. come back to the UK quickly. And uh, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, had an article in the Mail of the weekend uh, entitled Enough is Enough, Eco-Zealots are not just causing may mayhem, they're risking lives. So let's have a look at what she had to say. To the vandals who tried to ruin a great work of art this week, I say this, your behavior doesn't further your cause or influence the debate. Your disruptive behavior stops decent people from going about their daily lives and your guerrilla tactics will not succeed. Uh, over the last two weeks, we've seen continuous and serious disruption. The police must act firmly, effectively, and with the full support of local Authorities, I stand firmly behind the police, which is why I'm bringing forward the public order bill on Tuesday. Uh, that's tomorrow. Labour will have a choice uh, to back this bill, but they continue to put attention-seeking protesters ahead of the law-abiding majority. Enough is enough. Uh, and of course, in the mainstream press then this morning, we had this. 
uh, Dartford closure, just stop oil protesters, climb up QE2 bridge. So people were climbing on the bridge, closing the route uh, as a result, released the police, closed the route as a result, caused all kinds of traffic disruption and so on. Uh, and then uh, this in the National London climate protesters spray paint on Aston Martin showroom. Now, of course, uh, this is criminal damage, so that you don't need new legislation to deal with this particular issue. But nonetheless, this is the type of thing that's going on just at the right time for uh, the British uh, government to be pushing through this legislation. Now, Alex, I don't know whether if you can help with this very, very briefly, but uh, this is the current state of the public order bill. Of course, it was not Suella Braverman that put this to Parliament. It was uh, Pretty Patel some time ago. It's currently at report stage. So what I'm not clear about is, is Suella Braverman saying she's going to resubmit this to Parliament tomorrow. Uh, and in which case, does it start the entire process again? Or does it continue from where it left off before the change of uh, leadership? In my uh, fallible, quite possibly fallible understanding of what this, the current arrangements are, if a minister says they are resubmitting a bill, that counts as tabling it afresh and everything will have to be thrashed out from the start. But I'm very willing to be corrected by anyone who knows parliamentary procedure more up to date than I do. Uh, but the main point to make there, of course, is that public order is at the moment in the jurisdiction of England and Wales, uh, something which takes up two famous articles of a 1986 piece of legislation. So public order offences, which as we're about to see are um, quoted willy-nilly by constables now, uh, whenever you offend a gay person. Uh, the currently public order offences are only sections four and five uh, of an act in 1986, but this is going to completely revamp the scene as the 1986 bill did. Yes, uh, but of course, uh, we again remind everybody, you cannot look at uh, just one uh, piece of legislation in its uh, sort of as a separate thing. We've got to look at the overall legislative situation, legislative scene. And if you look at this online safety bill, right the way through to the schools bill on, on screen at the moment, uh, public order bill in the middle of that list, uh, we are heading for dictatorship. Uh, but where does that take us, Alex Ofcom and uh, GB News? And speaking of the online safety bill, of course, Ofcom will be the organisation which administrates that. Quite. And this is why even nearly a decade ago, uh, we resisted Ofcom's arm's length body at VOD uh, and saw them off, actually, as, as an uh, organisation, I think it's fair to say. But Ofcom have uh, stayed in the background wishing to be the uh, dictator of what goes on. Uh, the internet uh, under any kind of journalism, uh, we see the first real menace here uh, because people have all year been saying, how can particularly Mark Stein and Neil Oliver get away with so much balance and fairness in their presentations, given that GB News is a British TV licensed channel and therefore subject to Ofcom. And you can see the result there. Uh, Ofcom, the regulator, is in opening an investigation into Mark Stein's programme. His crime which he may potentially have broken the broadcasting code. Uh, this will send shivers down American spines, but Ritzer seem to have got used to this, this Stalinism. His crime is uh, to have allowed uh, Naomi uh, Wolf, uh, an excellent author who's uh, becoming more and more uh, UK column in her positions, uh, and, and allowing her to raise issues about the, the, the jab. They have received 411 viewer complaints, and um, uh, it seems that one and a half thousand people almost have liked this opening of the investigation when it was tweeted out. So that's possibly an ominous sign. But so we're about to go to the West Midlands because this is not linked with any, any other the other slides that we have, but it is of a piece with Charles Mallet's uh, recent piece, which is still on ukcolumn.org, about woke police and the bad law 
that produces the bad policing, which is worth a very careful read. It also goes with the opinion piece on no prey zones, which we may mention in a moment. Uh, but this is yet another example, and it also goes with um, David Scott's interview of Pastor Dia Moodley, Moodley D-I-A, and then Moodley is his surname, uh, which is an audio podcast we have uh, on the site at the moment, uh, with regard to particularly the constabularies for the major urban areas of Britain, in that case it was Avon and Somerset covering Bristol, saying that they had basically a policy not to allow any homosexual people to get offended by anything. Right, so this is right at the outer extreme, and that's saying something uh, of uh, what you can do with public order offences and uh, causing alarm, distress, anxiety, etc. You won't even hear the magic words in the clip we're about to play uh, tenuously linked to uh, Articles 4 and 5 of the 1986 uh, Act, which constitute public order offences. You won't hear breach of the peace. You will hear just a spiel from the not very young police constable, very self-righteous, but well into his 40s, it would, it would seem to me at least. Uh, this spiel boils down to you, and I haven't identified the man who's being talked to, but uh, he seems to be a journalist and to have a journalist pass on. Uh, you are about to cross the line into illegal behaviour by giving this opinion. So have a listen and see what the almost illegal behaviour was. Do with sexuality. That's the abolition of gender, which is entirely untruthful. The LGBT. No, don't film me, please. I don't right. want to be. Okay, that's fine. Well, I'm just I'm here doing that, but that's that's totally fine. Um, the LGB is completely different. That's to do with sexuality. But the plus is the insidious part. She is. My, my question was, okay, I'll try again. Do you believe that gay people are under the engagement and natural? That's a personal view. I'm warning you now. Okay, that's discriminatory behaviour. Okay, that that is on the on the cusp of a public order offence. If you use discriminatory behaviour or you start insulting other people's views again, then we will take action. Okay. I've given you the warning. That's it. Sorry, sorry, sir. Sorry, sir. What was the discriminatory part? When you start talking about LGBTQ and so that's an insidious part. I said your view was it's an insidious part. Of just insulted this person. Insulted yes, you have. Did you feel insulted by that comment? I don't know anything about who I am. I said the name I have just given you where the, where the parameters are. Don't step over them. I've given you where the parameters are. Do you understand where they are? No, I don't. Okay. If you use if you use derogatory, defamatory, or discriminatory terms, that will border into criminal offences. Okay. Don't use them. That's it. I'm not negotiating. I'm telling you where the parameters are. You can continue your conversation now. I think I've been very clear in what I said. I'm asking you a question. And of course, in closing there, that was a, a humorous uh, reference to 1970s policing uh, from an old sitcom. But that, the language there is derogatory. It, it is mainly given because it rhymes and, and sounds nice and alliterates. But derogatory, discriminatory and defamatory. Nothing to do with previous uh, wording of statutes uh, or of police training in how to uh, approach public order offences. Uh, not found in, in case law, uh, just made up really. And you can see that uh, in the Birmingham area here, the West Midlands, uh, the copper is doing the same as we know happened in Bristol, in London with the Met, in Greater Manchester, to name just three, which is that homosexuals are a special protected pet category. And uh, the police will go out of their way, as you heard in that clip, to say, excuse me, uh, homosexual bystander, you were insulted by that, weren't you? Right, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, Alex, that, that 
is eventually going to end up in court. And the question is, what would the courts do at that stage? Because there's no legislative basis for that. Yes, there's all kinds of reasonableness tests. Uh, we may prevail upon Charles Mallet to do another of his excellent pieces uh, responding to this in a policing basis. The courts are likely to throw it out. I mean, if this happens to you, be very, very level-headed about what you do. One thing that people have done in the past is to say to the copper, you know that you do not have reasonable suspicion of an indictable offence. I'll be coming after you personally for damages. It's your house that's at risk when I seek compensation for wrongful arrest. Uh, and another tactic, if you're up for some physical fracas, is to say, well, I shan't be resisting, uh, but you'll know it's a wrongful arrest, so you'll be carrying me to the nick. You can put the handcuffs on and then carry me. Try it at your own peril, but these are ways of making clear to these self-righteous prigs of police officers that they're nowhere near even the current relaxed parameters uh, of what you can use as a pretext to nick people for insults. Okay, Alex, thank you for that. I think we also have to add that, of course, the police themselves are being highly manipulated by the use of applied behavioural psychology. And so when they get courses on these sorts of subjects, uh, are they getting factual, good factual information or are they having their own views and values skewed? And I'm going to suggest in many cases it's the latter, but we better finish there. I'll be back in a couple of minutes with some extra. Yeah, thank you all very much for joining us. Um, Alex and Mark, thank you for joining us. See you in extra time beginning shortly. And that's available for everybody uh, who joins uh, UK Column Community. And I'd just like to say tomorrow at one o'clock, we should be playing out the first part of a three-part a three part interview that I've done with a lady called Sandy Adams. And we'll be talking about the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. And that was part of the uh, um, uh, that was part of the clip that uh, Mark Anderson referred to when he was talking about World Health Organization policy. And that's at one p.m. tomorrow in the usual slot. Yeah, thank you. Okay, that's it. We'll see you in a minute for extra time. Bye bye.